everyone, how is it going? Welcome to Pillars. Of course, I'm Dylan Bowman. Thank you so much for being here for another episode. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome my good friend and fellow Portlander, Yasin Boone, to the podcast. As you'll hear, Yasin and I have been friends for a decade now, going back to our earliest days in the sport. And he has just been a hugely positive influence on me throughout my career. He just has this palpable and contagious aura of good vibes that makes him just an awesome friend, coach, community leader and ambassador for the great sport of trail and ultra running. But of course, as we all do, he's been through his personal battles as well, which we talk a lot about in this conversation. Yasin's story is quite a powerful one, moving from a very self-destructive period in his life filled with problems with addiction to drugs and alcohol and the self-sabotage that came with it to being almost 17 years sober now and devoting his life in a lot of ways to giving back to the recovery community through his experience with running. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about Yasin's personal life philosophies that have rubbed off on me. We talk about his coaching and training business and what he's learned from that. And we finish by talking about what he's excited about for the future. This was a good one. I hope you guys do enjoy it. Before we cut to it, I just wanna give you a friendly reminder to please go download and subscribe to the Pillars app. We've got a lot of fun things going on right now. You may have seen that we put up the Joshua Tree Traverse FKT video over on our YouTube channel just yesterday. Go check that out. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Uh, that video has been up within the app for subscribers for about a week now. We also have a brand new 100K training plan that should be up within the app by the time you listen to this podcast. And this week, we also have the pleasure of hosting physical therapist, Dr. Claire Bernard Miller on our community Zoom, which we do on Wednesdays at 11.30 a.m. So Dr. Miller is gonna be there to answer all your rehab and prehab questions to make sure we all stay healthy and fit as runners. And as I said in last week's episode, guys, we are just so excited about what we're doing. We really think we're onto something with pillars. And I would just really appreciate if everyone who listens to this podcast, at least give it a try, at least go download it and check it out. No purchase necessary, I promise, no pressure. But even if you have a coach, I still think you'll find value in what we're trying to build over there. So go check it out. Okay, on with the show. Please welcome the happy warrior, Mr. Yasin Daboon. Yasin Daboon, good to see you, bro. Look so at us. Good to see you. Look at us, man. We're all grown up here. We're all grown up. We're in person, man. I haven't recorded a podcast in person in months, I feel like. I think the last one was Rachel Drake. I was going to say maybe Tyler and Rachel. Yeah, or something. it was Rachel Drake, which was. 
I think like December or yeah. something like that. It's so good to be seeing people back in the flesh. Yeah. I felt that yesterday too at one of our local races and, yeah. you know, seeing you, talking to you, not, <laughs> yeah. not bouncing behind you on the trail, talking not to the back Zoom. of your head. It's an absolutely glorious day in Portland. And it actually, it's been so nice for oh the last few weeks. We'll edit this part of the podcast out because I know all the Portlanders, all the hardcore Portlanders don't want anybody outside of Oregon to know that the weather is actually yeah. really nice here. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so. Totally. No, it's pouring rain right yeah, now. Pouring yes. rain. So we're inside <laughs> recording a podcast. But dude, I'm so excited we're doing this. Like, you know, we've been buddies for a long time and it was always inevitable that we would sit down on the podcast and have a conversation. I feel like there's infinity different directions that we could go. Oh, we could be here till like dinner time <laughs> and it's lunchtime. <laughs> I know. But no, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on your podcast and I, you've had so many great guests and I've listened to them and you know I've also heard you speak about your podcast and wanting to do this and get yeah. this off the ground for years <laughs> so to be now seeing you grow your podcast and your business and like to to be here as a guest is 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 really from the outside looking in it's just an honor and a treat oh uh, you're the man you're one of the <laughs> many people who I pretended to start a podcast or talked about the inevitability of me starting a podcast for years with, uh, before I finally put my money where my mouth was and did it. And so it's funny. I was just talking to somebody. I ran with this guy yesterday who was from Alaska mm -hmm. and he was saying he lives in Juneau. And I was like, Oh, do you know Jeff Rose? Mm -hmm. And I said, I ran with him in the gorge in the Columbia river gorge. We did this big 60 mile, like trans gorge run. Was yeah. Joe Grant, Jeff, myself, uh, Nick Triolo, and Willie. Yeah, yeah. And and Jeff was telling me because I was talking to him about starting my business yeah. back in like 2011. Yeah. And Jeff, and it was right after Jeff won Western States. Yeah. And Jeff, I just remember him telling me like, "You just got to do it, man," because he had done his camps. Mm -hmm. He just got his camps off the ground. And I just remember him like telling me like, at a certain point, you just kind of have to like make some moves yeah. and like take the plunge take the and like step. you can't just be like well what if or you know 100 percent. you have to and just it, you're, so ne you're never gonna feel completely ready to do it you just have to kind of go for it and so that was great yeah. um that was great advice that i got from jeff yeah. and then you know just seeing you do that as well too it's well kinda... i mean and, and to be honest i delayed for four or five years before i finally did take the first step and now looking back i'm just like kicking myself that i didn't <laughs> start it a lot earlier but also feeling that the time that i did start doing this both the podcast and what we're doing with pillars just makes perfect sense and it wouldn't have worked as well in the earlier days and i actually was listening to another podcast last week just a few days ago where the host said if you're not totally embarrassed by the first stuff that you put out that yeah. you've waited too long yeah. so i haven't really gone back and, and uh, listened nice. to some of those That's first episodes funny. but like just from the feedback i've gotten from other people is that like it's it's gotten better and stuff and so i do feel that um yeah you know you do you take the the first step and it's never going to be perfect to begin with but 
you know, that's what we're, oh, we're all yeah. here to do is to improve, get better. And exactly. I mean, think about when you first started ultra running, at least for me, I look back at like some of the things I was using and like, yeah. or like my first triathlon I did, even somebody commented on the photo, they're like, nice <laughs> racing kit. <laughs> so you just evolve, you yeah, learn, totally. you learn like that does not work yeah. and you yeah. learn, oh yeah, this works. Yeah. And so that's cool. Dude, but I want to start our, our conversation with the understanding that we could go a million different directions. The <laughs> only place that we can start is by recollecting the time that we first met 10 yes. years ago, bro. It's going to be 10 years yes. in June. June. Oh my gosh. That's Tell right. the story of when, oh when our God. friendship okay. first totally. uh, came into existence. Yes. June 2011, San Diego, California. <laughs> I was, it was my third hundred miler. I had some confidence under my belt and went down to California and Rod Bean was running, um, a couple other fast guys and gals, but there was this buzz about this young guy, Dylan Bowman, who was, and my wife told me afterwards, she's like, yeah, there were all these young kids saying like, Dylan Bowman's going to win. I don't know if that was your crew or whatever. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> or just some friends or fans that you had out there. But uh, I was like, who's this? So anyway, I, I still remember taking off, leading the race and climbing out of these switchbacks mm -hmm. and like looking down and seeing you. And I'll, I'll never forget because I remember you just giving me like a fist bump. Yeah. Because we didn't really even like know each other that no, well. We I didn't. think we knew of each other yeah. probably. But yeah. I remember you giving me like a fist bump and I was maybe like a quarter mile ahead of you. Yep. But I was like, that's cool, you know, like we're racing, but he's like feeling good, giving me a fist bump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, dude. And then, yeah. And then, you know, uh, the race went on. Um, you ended up winning the race. I think that was, was that your first 100 mile it win? Was my first 100, yeah. First 100 mile win, win. second 100, yeah. Yep. And so, um, you know, from that point on, you know, I just realized we became friends and um, stayed in touch and run over the years. And I do have one memory about that. I, I believe um, you, Topher, myself, um, maybe Rod were at the mm -hmm. finish line and we all said, you know, hundreds are just too long. They're too hard on the body. <laughs> yeah, They're brutal. So stupid. Like we're not like. I remember Topher being like, yeah, no more for me. Yeah. Like 100 I remember Ks, Rod said that too. Yeah, 100 yeah. Ks maybe, but like no, 50 milers, 50 miles, 100 Ks. Like a month later, yeah. all of us were registered yeah. for another 100. Yeah. I did Leadville like eight or 10 <laughs> weeks later. So. But it was, it's such a good, great memory in yes, my career. Not totally. only because I, I won the race, and, and we should say too that the reason I won the race is because you took a wrong turn at like mile 70. Yeah, it was like miles course. around the 100K mark. I took a wrong turn, but, you know, yeah, right. you probably yeah, would have I mean, won anyway. <laughs> Ten years ago now, maybe I would have won anyway. But, and you and Rod yeah. finished second together. Yep. And it was a moment where it reinforced that I was doing the right thing by totally devoting my life to this new pursuit, this new sport, this new hobby. I met you. I met Rod both of who, whom were like sort of heroes of mine. You know, I was reading your blogs and learning <laughs> as much as I could about the sport through the guys who had been yeah. in the sport a little longer mm -hmm. than I had at that point. Both you and Rod fit that bill. 
also Topher Gaylord yep. and, and Kim Gaylord. Mm-hmm. I met them for the first time at that race. Oh, that's since you met become, them for the first time there? Yeah, oh, yeah. really? And they've become like absolutely dear friends yeah. of ours. Topher officiated my wedding. Uh-huh. It's the first time I met Scotty Mills, the race director of the San Diego oh, 100. Same here. It's just like all these different... Um, Relationships. Connections, yeah, just that now have sort of spider webbed and changed and evolved over the course of the last 10 uh, years. But I'm getting goosebumps, I know. man. Seriously, my hairs on yeah. my arm are, are just because, yeah, that's one of the things I love about our our sport is yeah. just the the cultivation of the community yeah. and the relationships. That's what it's all about for yeah. me, too. It's like... But yeah, I didn't know some of those little tidbits there, <laughs> those connections. I didn't know those were a couple of your first times. That's yeah. that's really cool. And it's just a crazy how quickly a decade just clicks by too yeah. and how much you, we've all done in that decade. Yeah. And just like, even though we didn't really run together at all during that race, but you know, us finishing on the podium and having that mm-hmm. sort of connection forever. Like we became friends yeah, immediately. Absolutely. Right? And we see each other at different races over the yep. course of time. And of course, whenever I came out to Portland to visit our in-laws, because my wife Harmony grew up here, my mother and father-in-law have lived here for 40 years. So we come and visit them all the time, even before we moved here full time. I'd always get together with you and you'd oh, show yeah. me around Forest Park. and Totally. Uh, and places in the gorge, and uh, and now here we are. We're, we're neighbors, training buddies, yep, and absolutely. Ten it's years so, on. I'm so glad you moved here. I remember um, telling my wife every time you would come to visit. You know, in the winter, um, I think it was on your Instagram or something that you said you were the perpetuator of Stoke. <laughs> so I used to say, "Hey, it's our uh, Stoke the Fire run." Exactly. And so it was like every year. It was like around New Year's, yeah. and I was like, our run would be kind of like Stoke in the Fire, like. How was this past year, yeah. and what are you stoked for in the new year? Yeah. And that was always a fun kind of, yeah. And I always remember you talking about like, uh, like just kind of like where should we move and like you know like you. I mean, you've lived in great spots, mm-hmm. obviously, and but like to really like lay down some roots. I remember you just always kind of mentioning that like we're not sure yeah. like where I want to like really lay down some roots. So it's been fun to see that evolution as well. Yeah. And for you to t- Yeah, I mean how, how make, many make years moves, right? How many years was it of us doing our Stoke the Fire run of me saying, "Yeah, we're thinking about moving here." Before <laughs> we actually did, it was probably like 6 7 years of me pretending to do it and and but now you here did we are. It, man, here action. We are. Action. That's what I'm all about. Dude, I want to hear more about this 60-mile run that you did with Joe Grant and Jeff Rose and Willie. Uh, and So, and, unfortunately, the route, I believe, is no more yeah. because of the fires of 2017. But there was a, a route called the Marco Hatfield Trans Gorge. Mm. 60 miles with, like, 12,000 feet of gain wow. up and down through some of the hot spots in the Columbia River Gorge. And... Uh, yeah, Joe organized it. Jeff was coming to town. It was uh, it was the October after he won Western States. So you know. so this is 2010. That's the unbreakable year. Yes. Yeah. So it was 2010. Yes. So you know, and Willie and Nick and we were all just like, Jeff's coming too, and like, <laughs> yeah. and then you know, you know. A couple of us were like, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep up, right? you know, and, but Jeff was super cool and everybody, we had a great time and we hiked up through Mount Defiance to start the run yeah, and worked our way all the way back towards Angel's Rest. And it was just one of those runs where you kind of, 
you're kind of in awe, but then it was like kind of like the first time I ever ran with Scott Jurek. It was like you're in awe because you read books about him and stuff, but yeah. then you realize like, oh, he's just like part of my tribe. He's yeah. just one of us. And it's like, you know, my buddy uh, who ran with us last Wednesday, Andy, was like yeah. in awe that you showed up to the run. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, good job. You get to run with a world-class runner today. Yeah. Right, and he was right. stoked. He was just like, wow, that was so cool. I got to run with Dylan. Dude. Yeah, so that's kind of how it was our run with Jeff, too. Right. Like, here's this really soft-spoken guy who was literally, like... Just winning everything yeah. that he touched. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's funny to look back at that, too, because it feels like just yesterday, and I feel like a lot of the people who have come into the sport more recently don't even know who Jeff Rose nope. is because he's just not, like, posting on social media. I know. He's not, like, giving interviews, much to my chagrin. I tried to get him on the show. And, um, yeah, but it's it's so that time in the sport too. And I talk about this on the podcast too, 2010, 2011, that time frame. And Jeff is like sort of one of the first kind of ultra celebrities for lack of a better word, yeah. or somebody who is starting to kind of push the sport into mm -hmm. a new paradigm mm -hmm. where it wasn't just about jogging around in the woods and, but still carried that humble spirit yeah. that I think speaks to all of us when it comes to, our participation in the sport. So it's funny to hear that story. I'm, it's too bad that route doesn't exist in the gorge anymore. I, I was out there yesterday. I did four hours in the gorge yesterday. Oh, nice. and, you know, you get almost 7,000 feet yeah. of climbing. It's yeah. like such a great place to train. Again, we'll edit this out so that I know the hardcore <laughs> yes, yes. Oregonians don't want the word <laughs> totally. to get out. But. Um, so, dude, like, there's so much that we, we can talk about. And I think yeah. your progression as a person, as an athlete is something that's so admirable and so inspiring on many different levels. And of course, that being the case, it has, it hasn't come easy, right? Like no. you have been through your struggles. You've talked mm -hmm. about them openly mm -hmm. and um, you know, I'd love to talk about it more with you now because you and I, when we go running together, we yeah. talk nonstop yeah. <laughs> about our lives, about our families, sure. about our histories, about what's gone well, what hasn't. Right. And I know the way that you found this sport was coming out of a very self-destructive period in your mm -hmm. life Yep. with addiction and things Correct. like that and starting from a young age. And I think there's a lot that I identify with mm -hmm. in your story as well. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a bit about the, you know, your history um, with substance abuse and um, ultimately make our way into, into how that has shaped the person you are in your career as an athlete. So, but why don't you start with just sort of like what your childhood was like and at what point you felt like you sort of started to veer mm -hmm. off course or mm -hmm. in a direction that was sort of self-sabotaging mm -hmm. and what you think caused that at such a young age? Well, I, let's see. So I grew up in a city in Pennsylvania and I grew up with kind of a lot of trauma in my childhood. Mm -hmm. So my, my dad was, you know, working in the restaurant industry and he was working long hours and, you know, alcohol was a big part of that and other stuff. And, you know, it just didn't work for our family dynamic. And so my parents got divorced. And so my mom raised three kids by herself. And mm -hmm. I was like six, I think, when they split up. And so that 
I, I think, you know, I experienced a lot more, I think, than my brother and sister, too. They were younger. And eventually, you know, we moved to a rural part of Pennsylvania. My mom tried to better our lives. And that is where I really started kind of veering off because then I really felt just so different than everybody that lived mm. out there. And I started acting out. I started using, um, first off, tobacco products. Really? Smoking cigarettes and, and <laughs> chewing snuff and, yeah. and tobacco. And that's where it started for me, like that addictive... Like was it because escape. other kids were doing it or? I think that was part of it. Like I felt did, accepted with them. Uh, I also, it was kind of like, a, I think I got physically addicted to yeah. it. And then I was also coming from the city to the country, kind of, so to speak. And I realized that I could steal the stuff from stores uh, when I was in like sixth grade. And so that was another way that I got accepted by them. And so quickly, one thing led to another. I became addicted. I was supplying people with it. I was using it on a regular basis. And then one thing led to another, and it was alcohol. Yeah. Like at a young age, like 12. Yeah. Which I can't imagine because my daughter's 10 and a half right now. Oh. And it's like, I can't imagine a year and a half from now her drinking beer. Yeah. And like that's when I started. And my mom knew because of with my past with her past with my dad, uh -huh. that like there is an issue. It could be an issue. She has family Genetically. members. Genetically, yeah. And, yes, and so she gave me the warning talk when I was in like seventh grade, and you know I drank abnormally from the get go. Like, did she know that you were already experimenting when you yeah. guys had that talk? Oh yeah. yeah. You like, never tried to hide anything because I never that? drank normally. Uh, I always drank and passed out. To get as drunk as possible, yeah. Blacked out, like threw up, like got sick. And out like a school night, like mm -hmm. not knowing where I'm at and just like calling around the whole town, like asking where I'm at. I mean, as a parent now, I'm just like, How? that must be just so scary and yeah. maddening, like not knowing where your kid is and to find out that they're passed out drunk. And so, yeah, one thing led to another. And I always tell people, like, in meetings and stuff, too, like, it wasn't all bad. Like, I got control of it, and I ended up going to high school in Florida. Uh -huh. um, and I had a lot of great times, yeah. a lot of great times. Like, it became a source of, like, connection and camaraderie for me, like spring break, going down course, to South yeah. Beach and, you know, Key West. And it, I had a lot of great times. I la laughed a lot. And... Um, but it always became this thing that just had control over me. Yeah. Like I was, you know, there's functional drinkers that maybe they're problem drinkers, but they're functional in life and able to go to work and have families and be responsible. I was not one of those people. Yeah. I was always getting fired from jobs. Um, I was always screwing up relationships with females. Yeah. You know, I was... Um, tarnishing relationships with friends. Was it a was it a physical addiction early, or was it some coping for some sort of filling some hole? Oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's both. I mean, it's an it's a obsession and compulsion yeah. that's physically addicting, but it's also a mental obsession of the mind. And yeah, you're trying to numb the pain that you've dealt with your your life um, and. You know, some people take pills or shop or do other things yeah. or whatever it is. Um, 
and that that became that for me and it worked for a fair amount of time but then it stopped working and then I started graduating to harder drugs and that's what really expedited my using career if you will (laughs) which I'm grateful for I mean it took me down quick right and so I'm I'm grateful that you know I'm not somebody that's like 50 years old who I see all the time coming into AA meetings or 50 or 60 and they they got it yeah they're they got the, like they're finally they, they got the twinkle bottom. in their yeah. eye and they're ready to make changes and they're just like man i wish i would have done this like 20 years ago yeah and i got it at 25 luckily by the gift of desperation i was yeah. desperate to change so in a sense i'm very grateful yeah. that i experienced all that stuff what was that moment of desperation like because you know, of course, I feel like there's there's metaphors in all these different life experiences with being an athlete as well, right? And it's yeah. when we're injured that we like learn the most about how to perform mm-hmm. well as an athlete. And it's when you hit rock bottom that you finally figure out that you need to get sober. So what was the, the point of desperation like? And So basically I tried stopping on my own, just like willpower yeah. in like April of 04. And, you know, I moved back East with my brother and he's like, come out, live out here, you know, and I, I know now in hindsight that like shielding yourself from stuff is not the way to go or trying to like white knuckle it and muscle your way through it is not the way to do it. And that's what I did try. So I would, I would go like a week or two without oh. drinking, but I was smoking weed every day, but I would go uh, like a week or two without drinking and was like pat myself on the back yeah. and like, uh, I want to drink on the weekends and be with my friends and mm-hmm. stuff. And it was never that it was always just ugly, like, disgusting drinking, abnormal yeah. drinking. It was never like, hey, cheers, have a good, you know, yeah. having a great time. Have a couple at the and end. go home. Yeah. No, at the end it was not. Yeah. It, um, those days were over, so I eventually went to a wedding on July 10th of 04, and I said, I'm going to try some controlled drinking at this yeah. wedding. <laughs> Did not end well. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I won't go into the details, but that was the that was the time where I came out of a blackout. And for those of you that don't know what a blackout is, it's like your your brain stops working, but your body is still yeah. operating. Um, John Mulaney, who's a stand-up comic, he he does a good uh, description of what a blackout <laughs> is. If you ever want to Google John Mulaney what a blackout is. He delivers a lot better than me. But uh, anyway, I got dropped off at my mom's house, 25 years old. I didn't have any shoes on. I didn't have any money. I didn't have, I didn't really know what happened. People were telling me what I did. And I still to this day have no recollection of doing it. And my mom was just like, oh my God, she was at her wits end. She had tried helping me so many times. All my family members tried. That's the hard thing about addiction is that mm-hmm. it's just so heartbreaking for family. Yeah. It's like you you love this person, you're trying to help them and they just keep just destroying yeah. everything. Every ounce it's, of trust. Yes. And so um she's like I'm not helping you anymore. Mm-hmm. And I my brother's like you take him, I'm not taking him anymore. So I your older brother? I, Younger brother. Younger brother. Way more responsible than me at that time. He has four kids and 
grew up a lot quicker than I did in terms of responsibility and I was kind of the wild child but uh he dropped me off and I'm not I'm not doing this anymore and my mom's like I'm not helping you anymore Mm -hmm. until you get professional help and in recovery they talk about this place um where they call it's called the jumping off place where like you can't imagine life without alcohol mm-hmm. and you can't imagine life with alcohol oh. and you're at this jumping off place you got to choose which way to jump wow yeah and it's yeah it's just like yeah and that was the first time my mom and my aunt I still remember I was so brutally hung over I mean you know how it is when you're like I do just <laughs> yes when you're just like I mean it's just like your head is pounding like yeah. you can't get any fluids in you yeah I just remember like walking with this big Gatorade and my aunt had some rest in peace um, she had some experience in like narcotics anonymous and alcoholics anonymous and mm-hmm. so she she's like you need to go to a meeting and I was just like Whatever. This is the day after the wedding? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was like, I was on like a three-day hangover. I yeah. mean, it was, it was that bad. Yeah. I mixed a bunch of other stuff in there too yeah. on top of alcohol. But, um, you know, I was, I was just like, well, yeah, whatever. I'll do whatever. <laughs> I was yeah. just so tired. I was just beat down. Yeah. And they took me to this, it was a church, and I had issues with religion, organized religion. Uh, and I was just like, oh, oh, here we go. So it's an AA meeting. Yeah. Alcoholics it, Anonymous. It was an AA yeah. meeting, but it was, I didn't know anything about it. I had all these preconceived notions of what it was and I knew I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And so I saw all these people standing outside the church and we were walking across the park and I was just like, again, I was just like snap judgment, like, here we go. They're going to start trying to like convert me and like sell me on mm-hmm. their shit, you know? So you had this cynicism, probably not believing that you were going to actually get sober. Or did you? Did you feel like maybe this is my chance? I kind of knew that my time was coming to an end because I was living in Colorado from 2000 to 2004. Mm. And it got bad out there. Mm. And so my family had an intervention on me. When I was visiting from Colorado, just to backpedal a little bit. Wow. Um, that was in January. What was that like? They sat you down and yeah, said you're I was visiting. I was visiting for like Christmas time, all right, right around the beginning of um, 2004. And like I was completely off guard, like not even expecting it. Mm-hmm. And my sister, brother, my mom, my sister in law, they were all around me in the room. And they're just like, all of a sudden, like the vibe changed in the room. And it was just like, yeah, so the real reason we wanted to talk to you today and get us all here is to talk about like your drinking and using and how it's affected us all. And I was just like, what? I'm like living in Denver. Like you guys are all out here. Like how is it affecting you? And they went around one by one and told me. Wow. You call me at three o'clock in the morning crying on the phone I was like oh, you owe me like 200 bucks like yeah. and they all went around you know and I was just like that's the selfishness and self-centeredness of alcoholism is that you don't you think, don't recognize no you don't you're just like it's my life I'll do what I want you go do your life I'll do mine you know mm-hmm. leave me alone and it's not it's not you are affecting other people's lives especially in your family and uh 
So that was the first eye opener, but I ended up going back to Colorado and then I moved back April 04. Back east. Yes, to be closer to family with an attempt to change my life. And that's when I tried to like white knuckle it and do willpower. Yeah. And that didn't last. And then that brings us to that last wedding debacle and then to um, sobriety. Yep. And then July 12th is my sobriety date, 04. That, so that first meeting that I went to where I judged all these people before I walked up, I yeah. was totally wrong about them. They were all super cool. They were all like all ages, young, old, professionals. And they were not even talking about my drinking. They were talking about their own. Yeah. And the door was open. They're like, you can leave anytime. Like... We're going bowling after if you want to join us. <laughs> I was just like, what? Bowling? How do you go bowling sober, yeah. first of all? <laughs> you got to have a picture at least, yes, right? Exactly. I'm sorry to laugh. So, but. no, it's, it's so true. But, like, that was the first, um, like, crack in, like, the ice block around my heart. Uh, that was, like, the first, cra- like, wow. big splinter crack. What a way to describe that. Wow. Yeah, it was... Um, that was, that was it. And like when I kept going to these meetings, um, I would hear people telling my story yeah. and how they overcame it and how their life got better. And I was just like, oh my God. Like, so you started to believe that it was possible. I did. Yeah. I did. And I was just like, wow, these aren't <clears throat> like bums and like trench coats in a church basement. Yeah. These are like people like me, like people. One guy's like, hey man, like, yeah, we got... Uh, we, we, we do uh, like a running group and, and stuff like that. And, you know, just one thing led to another. But I actually, before that, I ended up checking myself into a, a professional treatment center okay. for 28 days. So that's when the white knuckling ended. You, you actually sought some help. Yep. So I did in like an inpatient facility 28 days. And that was probably one of the most difficult times for mm-hmm. me, because I was going through what they call the pause, which stands for post-acute withdrawal symptoms, like just massive headaches every day. Yeah. Like so sleepy, like you can't even keep your eyes open. Yeah. Just. Well, dude, I mean, like, thanks so much for sharing it. I know you've told the story before, but it does make a big difference. And I think I identify with it so much in that mm-hmm. I was so lucky, like looking back at my childhood, I feel so lucky that I didn't fall into a similar Mm -hmm. path because I grew up partying really hard too, from a young age too. And with like a group of of friends who were all doing the same thing, several of whom have struggled Mm -hmm. and in a serious way. And some of whom who have struggled in sort of a prolonged, consistent Mm -hmm. way. Where it feels like, right. And, um, I think, yeah, the fact that you're coming up on 17 years already and that you, you hit rock bottom at 25. I mean, I was still partying hard at 25. Yeah. Well, we partied in a lot of the same places like Fort Collins and I mean, (laughs) yes, for fun. (laughs) Totally. But yeah, no, I'm, like I said, I'm pinch me, um, because, um, it's, a dimension of living that I never knew mm-hmm. existed. Right. And like I said, I'm just so grateful it took me down quick and that I was open-minded and willing to make changes. It was like I was beaten into desperation and yeah. it was just the right 
you had mentioned like the timing and the right variables of things. That's exactly how it was for me. Yeah. It was just the right timing, the right variables, the right things happened. Um, and that's where I changed my life. I began to change my life and I was, it didn't happen overnight and I, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't all of a sudden like, all right, I got this. I'm sober, you know, like I'm going to change my life. Like it was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. I had to change the way I think the change the people that I hung around with. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's probably the most important part. How long does it take or from your experience to go from a feeling that you can't really get through the day without drinking or using to a point where you're actually have more control over it. So in my experience, and I always kind of feel bad for people that are really struggling on a day-to-day basis to, to not drink. My mm-hmm. experience was I just, once I, that last drunk at that wedding, and once I went to that first meeting and I went to rehab, I knew that that chapter of my life was behind me. Wow. I just knew that like, hey, it's obvious. The writing is on the wall and that I had a lot of good times, acceptance. I just accepted that that chapter is over with and it's time to like turn the page. So what do you, of course, this is the time when you started to discover sport again. I know you grew up sort of a team sport Mm -hmm. athlete, but you finally started to discover endurance sport, which Mm -hmm. sort of became the next chapter of your life. Yes. Did you have any thoughts in the moment that you were trading one addiction for the other? Or what do you think about that sort of like argument? Because you do see this theme, especially in trail and ultra running, but I think throughout endurance sport Mm -hmm. of people who have sort of this addictive personality Mm -hmm. or excessive nature, which I've always had to, I mean, I should say at a young age, I was never like a, just have one beer type guy. It was always like, you know, if I'm having one, I intend to have 10, you know, (laughs) and then I might go two or three weeks without it. But the next time I have one, like I'm going as hard as I can. And that's just always been my personality. And I think it's a a theme in our sport too. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that relationship between trading what is clearly a self-destructive habit for a habit that you could at least tell yourself is more wholesome or less destructive? No, it's a great question. A lot of people have pegged me for that, especially Mm -hmm. early on, like, you know, oh, you're sober now. Oh, you're doing this. It's like, oh, you're just trading one addiction for the other. I, I heard that so many times. And I, I really don't think it's that simple and easy to just put into that box. Mm-hmm. I think especially in the sport that we are, like when I discovered trail running, like for me, it's, it's more spiritual. It's more of a connection to nature and with people. I think that's what I was always seeking is like this connection to something bigger. Wow. Like whether you're in the bars or at the house parties, that camaraderie, right? It is all about connection too, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's why millions and billions of people are addicted to Facebook. I mean, they want to connect to something bigger than them. And they, you know, it's, wow. It's, um, it's something that I was, I was searching for. And like you said, I was always an athlete when I got sober, I was still heavily addicted to nicotine. So I was smoking still a pack a day at 25 yeah. when I was 30 days sober. 
three months over, still smoking like crazy, waking up in the night, coughing up black tar, yeah. and then lighting up a cigarette. And I knew, like, I got to stop this. Yeah. These cigarettes are getting so expensive. They're really bad. So I was actually working out, I was pumping iron. And I knew just from my experience as an athlete, I was like, I need to start doing some cardio so I don't want to smoke. Yeah. If I'm going to really stop smoking, like, I need to substitute some cardio for cigarettes. Yeah. And so I came up with a plan, and I said, at six months sober, I'm going to quit cigarettes. So every six months, I will have an anniversary off of something. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I, yeah, at six months, I had this little, like, mini little ceremony in my studio apartment. <laughs> I, like, lit some candles, threw on some Pearl Jam, and you... smoked my last one. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, and it was awesome. I just remember, like, flushing it down the toilet, and I was just like, just flush. Wow. It's done. And so then dude from a meeting in Mark Valley in, um, in Ithaca, New York, he's like, yeah, see, you've been working out a lot. You should do the YMCA triathlon. So then I was like, what's that? Swimming, biking, running. Okay. Started swimming, you know, get my lungs back. Yeah. And that's where I caught the bug. A lot of people don't know that I caught the bug in sports triathlon. triathlon. I was going to ask you about that. Yep. And then I, and then I, uh, a few years into that, into road running, that's when I started trail running. Yeah. And that's when I read Dean Karnaz's book, Ultra Marathon Man, <laughs> Hell yeah. in 06, I believe, 05 or 06. Yeah. And that's where I started trail running. And then I never looked back. Yeah. And that's where I met you, when I met you and five years later. Yeah. What a what, what a an amazing journey. story! What a journey! And, and everybody's got their journey. Totally. I mean, sometimes the, of the peaks and valleys aren't as high. Do you ever feel like the running ever got sort of like self destructive in the same way, or were you always able to kind of control those self destructive tendencies I afterwards? Mean, sometimes I do feel like there has been. Well, sometimes I do recognize the feeling of like after a hundred miler, yeah. like that same feeling of like, oh, oh I, I feel hungover. So, right. You know, and then I you're feel, like, I can't wait to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Yes. There's the, definitely those parallels of mm -hmm. like, I'm never doing that again. Mm -hmm. You know, hugging the porcelain. Yeah. And I'm never doing that again. And then a day later, you're like, let's go. Yeah. So there have been times, you know, admittedly where my running has gotten a little, a, a, obsessive compulsive and I've had to like check myself especially after you know meeting my wife and her pointing some things out to me and really yeah they're always good at uh, shining <laughs> lights where we don't want to look <laughs> yes. well yeah I mean <clears throat> so it's, yeah it's it's a a long journey and I'm sure there's people listening to this who can identify so much with your story and, or with my story of yeah. like, you know, yeah. being lucky to have not fallen down that rabbit hole, even though I was sort of circling the drain as close totally. as you could for so many friends like that too, for, for a long time. And I just wanted to like, maybe have you expand on something that you've said to me a couple of times on our runs together that has always stuck with me. And that yeah. is, the fact that alcohol is a depressant and me being somebody who still does enjoy beers every once in a while, yeah. 
probably too often, especially during the pandemic, I should say. <laughs> um, that relationship. And so maybe expand on it because yeah. you've said it to me a couple I've, of times. I've always joked with people that have said like, oh, I don't know why I'm so depressed all the time. And I, I always joke saying, well, you keep dumping a depressant down your throat, you know? Yeah. Um, it's tough because it's, it's, it's alcohol is such a accepted thing in society. It's a social lubricant. It's, um, it's a, it's a way for us to connect and be social. I mean, even during a pandemic, you know, it's, it passes the time. Yeah. It relaxes you. And there are times where I do miss that. I mean, I romanticize about cracking one open or, (laughs) and just having that pressure release valve now, especially now I'm like so Mm -hmm. busy and like stress and parenting and all this stuff there, you know, I sometimes like, Oh, maybe I should go down to the dispensary or, you know, it would be nice to just have a nice glass of wine or, you know, change, change the uh, prism through which you see through life for a second. I mean, it's something my brother's said, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, because he's been off the booze for almost a year and a half now. But, and for him, it's interesting. And he and I grew up together. You know, he's only 14 months older than me. We ran with similar crowds. He influenced me heavily. We partied together a lot. And neither of us ever had like a major problem with, with booze, but he, he made the conscious decision like a year and a half ago to just like take some time off. And what he says is like that everybody's kind of got to get high off something, you know, and for him, he's just like getting high off sobriety for a little while, you know, he's like, so, I mean, is there something for you that you do to sort of have that pressure release valve or to like, quote unquote, kind of get high outside of your running, obviously, and your athletics? I mean, running and trail running and just being in nature is definitely a huge part of it. I mean, that just the day-to-day stuff is like having a clear signal yeah. on a day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-to-decade basis. Compa- compounding, like seriously, yeah. compounding. Yeah. It's just my brain. I feel like my brain has changed. Wow. It's like changed the structure. So, I'm curious about that too because like I never knew you in that chapter of your life. But like knowing you now for a decade and having the pleasure to – run together. And whenever we do, yeah. we just can't shut up the two of us <laughs> together. And, but you always, like, I always finish our runs feeling better. You have this infectious, like positivity <laughs> about you. Did that come after your sobriety or is that something that I, was with you when you were younger too? I think I've always been kind of enthusiastic would be probably a good word, but I've not, not always been positive. Mm-hmm. I still remember being a kid and like, I'd have a soccer game that day and I'd see like a couple clouds. And I'd be like, it's going to rain, you know? <laughs> and it's, but so that's one of the things that I really had to change when I got sober was my outlook on life and like my pers- perspective. And so I think it takes practice. It really does. And I'm not Mr. Positive all the time. Really? Ask my family members, no. Really? I'm not. In, in races, I'm not. And I tell this to people that I coach. I'm not Mr. Positive all the time. I'm a human. But I learned that I have to just kind of like, like I used, that's how I used to drink. I used to drink like, oh, man, this, this country is so messed up. Like this 
job I have, this town that I live in, you know, it's always an excuse to yeah. just bottoms up, you know, and it was always this dismal, negative, like, view, almost like a cynical, like you said earlier, like mm-hmm. this cynicism. And I just, uh, yeah, I've just learned to really try to change my perspective on things. And, you know, we always say feed the good wolf, as you know. Um, Please, I was going to ask you about this, so why don't you Well, I don't know if you know the full story of this, but basically there was a guy, Max, in the first meetings that I used to go to in New York who used Mm -hmm. to always talk about Feed the Good Wolf because his Native American friend who was in recovery used to always tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I always just kind of remembered Max talking about, like, Feed the Good Wolf and about how every day, because it's just one day at a time, all you have is today yeah. is to just not drink, choose how you want to look at your day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today. Break it down into, just like in ultras, break it down into I was just gonna smaller say, yeah. digestible chunks and become... And even with training too. Yeah. Because when you, do, when you focus on the days ahead or the race that's far off in the distance, it goes back to the philosophy of process over outcome, right? Exactly. You focus on the training that you have today, and then tomorrow you can worry about those intervals you've got exactly, for tomorrow, right? right. So I, you know, again, I was just trying all these different tactics to try to, like, start my day off right, to change, like, you know, there's a saying, you can start your day over at any time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would, like, just try all these things. And it was one year, um, Erica, my wife, bought me a, a card for my sober anniversary, and it had a picture of two wolves, on it, like howling at the moon, and on the inside, she said, "Happy anniversary! Remember the story Max always talked about about the story of the two wolves." So I basically hung that card above my toilet mm-hmm. in my bathroom. Yeah. And so every morning, like I would go to the bathroom. It's the first thing I see, and I was just like, "Which wolf are you going to feed today?" And for those that don't know the story, I'll tell it to you real quick. It's you may have heard it, but it's a simple. Cherokee legend where an elder is talking to a a child and says that every person within them has two wolves that are in constant opposition every day. One wolf is the good wolf, which represents like positivity, kindness, love. The other one is the bad wolf, which represents negativity, anger, resentment, greed. And the child says, well, which wolf wins? And the elder simply states the one that you feed. So every day you can choose like, or every moment yeah, you could say like, what am I feeding into? Whatever one you're feeding is getting stronger. If, oh, I gotta, I'm so busy. I gotta do this, that, you yeah. know, the other thing I'm feeding the bad wolf. And the more you feed it, the stronger it gets yeah. and the more it gets magnified. So, it's the, like the law of compounding like what you were saying yes. with having the clear signal every day for weeks, months, and years being sober, those things add up and actually make material differences in your life. When you just start to realize, it's not like I don't feed the bad wolf. Of course. I just, my brain has almost like changed to the point where I recognize it sooner Yeah. and I don't dwell in it and I don't go digging down those rabbit holes. I mean, it's such a profound... It's story, simple, right? it's like, simple but profound, yeah. right? I mean, it, it brings up something that Harmony and I have been talking a lot uh, about a lot recently, and that is just minimizing negative 
talk, whether it's self-talk or talk about the world, you know, talk about what's happening in the news, how we feel about ourselves, you know, whether it's getting older or not feeling fit or Mm -hmm. being like, you're, you're not making progress in your professional things. Yeah. And so we've intentionally in our house started to sort of check one another like, Hey, like you just said that. Exactly. And I'm telling you, dude, it has made a huge difference where we sort of like, we'll catch ourselves in the middle of things mm-hmm. <laughs> and man, it, like it yeah. honestly makes you feel better on a daily basis to starve that wolf for lack yes. of a better word. Yes. Right. Very. Yeah. Perfect. So even if you're not feeding the good one, like start, starve yes. that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Boom. I mean, it's, a, it's another one of those things where like, yeah, I mean, you didn't, of course you didn't come up with the story, no, but it's sort of, I mean, it's sort of become the tagline of your guys' business. And right. I feel like you live through this philosophy for sure. Like it's the, I, the attitude that you bring to life and to <laughs> your relationships with your friends, including me is one of, like I said, just infectious positivity to where when we're finished with our run, it's like. Man, I just feel better <laughs> because I mean, it, part of it's probably the fact that, like I said, we can't shut up when we yeah, talk to yeah, each other. Yeah, so we, yeah. we probably have totally. a little bit of talk therapy. But I mean, I try, I try to live it. But like I said, I'm not, I'm not perfect all the time. But I do think what you and your wife Harmony are on onto is super important, and it's something that I talk to about people that I coach a lot too. Is not only the inner dialogue what you're telling yourself internally, Mm -hmm. but what you also say out loud. Because that, and the example that I always give is that my whole academic career, I used to always say I suck at math. And what happened? I sucked at math. So, you know, I just ran with somebody the other day. It was like, I really suck on the downhills. Like my downhill running is horrible and like on and on self-deprecating. And I'm just like, at the end of the run, I'm like, you, you know what you have to start saying? I want to improve my downhill running. Like just by simply subtly changing a word or two, it's that takes that negative connotation and it's like puts a positive, like I want, no, I want, I'm working yeah. on improving my downhill running because it, instead what of like, coaching. I suck at downhill running. Right. I'm such a loser. I lose You're so sort much of time. You manifesting know, manifesting that weakness continuing into the future. Or, right. or rationalizing right. the fact like why you're not going to get better at it. Yes. It's funny because yep. in coaching too, people are s- sort of either very science oriented and don't pay attention to these more like touchy feely yeah. kind of um, emotional things that are psychological things that contribute to our success or failure mm-hmm. or they maybe emphasize only that sort of emotional or the artistic side of right. coaching and, and uh, sort of de-emphasize the, the scientific totally. part. Do I, you, I mean, I think, well, first of all, Olympians are doing visualization. They're doing sports psychology. You know, you can, it's be, true. you could be yeah. the most fit person in the world and, you know, if you don't, if you're not strong mentally or emotionally, when push comes to shove, especially in our sport, you're going to draw probably. It's or, so true. Yeah. Yeah. And you can point to people who 
are definitely more talented than you, but who don't necessarily have the emotional, psychological belief in themselves to perform at the same level. There's definitely physiological adaptations that need to happen for, you know, and it, it drove me nuts a little bit. Speaking of Jeff Rose, when he started winning everything about how he talked about how he just doesn't train anymore. And like, he just runs by feel. I was just like, that's driving me nuts. I'm just like finishing like a exercise science degree. I'm like, (laughs) um, so I think like having a blend of those Mm -hmm. is, is good to have like the structure and the science behind it, but also to be in touch with your inner dialogue to your, your thinking, your thoughts and your positivity. Yeah. I want to talk about something else you brought into my personal lexicon aside from feed the good wolf. And that is rocking chair shit. Oh yes. (laughs) Explain to the audience what rocking chair shit is. I don't know. I came up with it. I think it was derived from hearing, um, David Goggins speak about something, but it really hit home for me just because I don't know. I mean, life's going by so quickly. Like, look at it. Just blink our eyes, and we've known each other for a decade. And yeah. I don't know. I just I've lost a few friends and young, and um, I've also known some people in my life that like have a lot of regrets in their life. Mm-hmm. Just like I think my dad's actually one of those people too. Just looks back and just kind of just like, man, I wish I would have done this or tried that or, you know, and, uh, you know, I just remember hearing Goggins talk about something like, when I look back on my life, I want to be like proud. I want to be, I want to know that, you know, I went for it. And so I, I came up with this thing called like rocking chair shit, like people that are doing these adventures or races, even if you fall short, like you're going to be sitting on your rocking chair someday and you're going to be like, yeah, I, I did that, or I went for that. And, you know, I think that's going to feel really good. Totally. And um, I actually just met, dude, so much to catch up on. I just met this couple on the top of Council Crest the other day. It was so gorgeous. I just, I just sat down at the top. I was almost <laughs> done with my run, but I was just like, this is so amazing. So I just started in. talking to this old elderly couple, mm-hmm. both 89 years old young and they were in great shape like cognitively like sharp and they we just started chatting and they basically um said that they hike up there from hillsdale twice a week it's a five mile round trip and they just started opening up to me about their life like she was climbing mount hood um while mount st helens exploded she hiked the whole Timberline Trail on her 40th birthday. Uh That was 49 years ago. Wow. 49 years ago, she hiked the entire Timberline on her 40th, alone, solo, three days. Wow. And they just went on and on telling me stories. And I actually told them the rocking chair shit story. Yeah. And she's like, well, we're still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) They're not on the chair yet. No, they're not even on their rocking chair. (laughs) They're still doing it. So, well, maybe in 50 years, you and I are going to be here in Portland on one of our uh, front porches, remembering that 2011 San Diego 100. By then, I'll I'll have won Western States and yeah, Hard Rock and my stories. Us, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. 
Um, well, dude, I mean, it, it's again, I think emblematic or representative of, of your personality. And again, like just something that's stuck with me is like, this is what we need to pursue is like the shit that we are going to look back on when we're sitting in a rocking chair. Dude, your Wonderland trail thing. You know how many people since this summer have said to me, like, I just actually saw Mario Mendoza yesterday and he was like telling me about his treadmill world record attempt. Mm -hmm. And he's like, dude, I watched, you know, uh, Dylan's Wonderland thing. And he's like, I was trying to keep my mind distracted on the treadmill, but like, we are doing this stuff yeah. year after year. I mean, like I can remember each year since I've gotten sober by the like race or adventure that I've done uh, as like a like placeholder, you know, for that year. Yeah. And it's just, it's even if you fall short, like there's stuff that I've come short on and I'm just like, well, I attempted mm-hmm. it. Like I, w- I won't be sitting in my rocking chair saying, I wonder if I could have done that. Right. I tried it. Yeah. I didn't do it. <laughs> One of the things that you have been, that you tried and that you were very successful at and that has made a big difference in a lot of people's lives is your business as a, as a coach and as a trainer with your business partner, Willie. And you said earlier that it was some, in some way inspired by the conversation that you had with Jeff during this trans gorge run mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Tell us a little bit about the origin story and obviously mm-hmm. explain a little bit about what you do for those who don't yeah. know. Well, I was coaching here by myself in 09 when I moved to Portland and I had finished like a, it kind of, I didn't like plan to be a running coach. I was in a, like an exercise science program at Portland State University, finishing up my degree and my ex-phys professor came up to me one day and was like, hey, do you coach runners? Because I got an email from this woman on the other side of the university is looking for a running coach. Mm-hmm. And you're the first person I thought of. So I was like, yeah, give her my email. And I kind of just started like, one thing I've always liked for myself is just kind of like laying out like a training plan mm-hmm. and like seeing it on paper and like just to have that visualization of like working towards something. So I kind of did that for her, and that's kind of where I started thinking like, hmm, okay, the sport was growing, Facebook had just come out, I had all these people like messaging me on Facebook, like, hey, what do you do for nutrition? Like, do you think I should, you know, asking me all these running-related questions, and one point Erica said to me like, you should start charging people for this stuff, like, you're spending a lot of time, like, giving them all this consultation and advice, and so I just started like made these like little mini business cards. So that, when did the YUS Wolf Pack come together with so Willie? So that was in 09 and then I did that for like a year or two and then Willie had moved to uh, was moving to Portland mm-hmm. and he pitched this idea to me about starting this business. Had you guys known each other before that? No, we he, wow. he moved here. He moved here and reached out to Nick Triolo and myself before he moved here. He just basically cold called us and like was where like, where did hey. he move from? He was in the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah. And he just was like, hey, I see you and Nick's name on a lot of these local race results. Love to connect with you when I get to Portland. So I was like, hey, yeah, hit me up when you get to town and we'll go out for a run together. You know, just that's the way our sport is, right? Literally running down the Wildwood Trail, I get to Wild Cherry trail intersection yeah. and he's walking down this is on his first day in town 
and I'm running, and we both like look at each other. We didn't know each other, yeah. only from Facebook. And we both were like, he's like, you seen? I'm like, Willie. And that's where we met, yeah. in the corner of Wild Cherry and Wildwood. So anyway, we started running together, became friends. He was finishing up his personal training uh, certification, and he's like, you're already coaching. I'm like a personal trainer now. Um, we, he pitched this whole idea, which is very different than what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, it was more like guiding uh, for trips and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it also had a coaching and training component with like boot camp classes. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of like that point where you're like, I don't know. Like, yeah. And I was kind of hemming and hawing for a while about doing it. And I was going to go to grad school my daughter was like really young and mm. my running career was going pretty well yeah. with results and stuff. So I was just kind of like, well, there's like a fork in the road. Like yeah. I either got to commit, which I actually did commit to the program. Yeah. And there were some weird things that happened with the program that I just got like weird vibes from. The graduate degree program. Yeah. And I just... Just the, you know how you talk about people have gut feelings. Yeah, I feel like I had some gut feelings, like I'm not supposed to do this. And then wow. I remember like calling him and being like, "Hey, man, you still want to do that business thing?" And he's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Let's start scheming." Yeah. And that's ten that years ago. Yeah, we're coming up on ten, I believe. Um, I think we started in 2011, 2012 officially. Yeah. So, yeah, what we do is um, we do, like, coaching and training, mm -hmm. and we do corporate wellness. So we offer fitness classes for office workers to take a break from their workplace. Now a lot on Zoom, but around Portland in person. We do youth programs, and um, that's been a big part of our business lately. Is, yeah. Um, yeah, you have to go to your youth program here in a little while. Yes. But before before we go, um, I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about sort of navigating this moment in history as a small business and how you've managed to cultivate community over the years and how, yeah, maybe the feelings that you had when everything was going down. I'm sure it was quite scary as a small business owner. Uh, that depends on being physically in, or at least traditionally depended on being physically in the, in the same place as right. your, uh, your clients and customers. It, yeah. I mean, when it first happened, I, like everybody else was really confused and scared and like, oh no, uh oh, like the world is changing. Yeah. And you know, like one of our biggest clients, um, Daimler, they were so kind and generous to like pay us for like the first couple months without having to be there. Yeah. And which was awesome and shout out Daimler. But uh, yeah, there was a couple moments there of uncertainty and I'm so used to just connecting with sometimes a hundred people per day yeah. in person that I went from like not seeing anybody to like, wondering like all races are canceled like am I going to even be coaching people anymore mm -hmm. like well, what about me I like to race too yeah. you know and you know we talked a lot about that on the trail did you too. fear for the future of your business for a little while or well not really because first of all unlike a lot of other businesses we don't have the 
quite like the overhead that a lot of these businesses have. So we don't have a gym space and equipment and like rent and leasing and stuff that we have to pay for. So, um, and I realized that not everybody is just about racing. It's all, it's about having structure, having a plan, having direction, having the connection with a coach and Mm -hmm. simply changing, you know, an adventure run for a race and working towards that goal yeah. and staying accountable to somebody and having that relationship together. So I was actually surprised that I still kept on quite a bit of athletes yeah. um, through the whole pandemic. And actually a lot of our corporate accounts, and we even picked up some new ones, which were all virtual workout classes. Mm-hmm. And so those have picked up. But the main thing that will really ticked up for us was our youth programs because, I mean, personally, I've really felt just really bad for the kids. I mean, imagine having to grow up through this. It's like... Brutal. Brutal. Can't imagine. I mean, especially at a, you know, like a developmental age when it's very important to be social and to see each other's micro expressions and just, yeah. Just be in each other's company and... Mm-hmm. learn how to be a human. Yeah. Um, so we started this yeah. thing called the PAC, which stands for Portland After School Connection for Kids. Yes. <laughs> and that's on Mondays and Wednesdays, which I'm about to go to here soon. Yeah. Um, and it's great. We have like up close to 20 kids on Monday and 20 kids on Wednesday. And we, it's not strictly running, but we get them outside Fresh air, running around, kickball, dodgeball, hiking, trail running, soccer. I mean, every week's different. And that like, must be just an absolute blast. It's probably exhausting. It's it, all the above, all the above. And at the end, the best thing is, is the parent, the kids don't want to leave. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a... So the parents are super happy. <laughs> um so, you know, understanding that we got to start winding down here eventually, there's, again, a million things that we could talk about, and we'll probably just have to schedule around two eventually. <laughs> but sort of circling back to what was uh, a yeah, big theme of our conversation and you being in recovery, I know you also spent a lot of your time interacting with the local community in mm-hmm. recovery and using running to help them. Talk about that a little yeah. bit. So I partnered with the Alano Club of Portland, which is an amazing organization. And I used to run with the executive director, Brent Canode, quite a bit. And we used to always just loosely talk about, like, we, we should start, like, a sober run group. And, like, because there's this group in Boston called the Boston Bulldogs, and they're quite big and renowned. And we're like, we, sh- we can, like, model it after the Boston Bulldogs and... Um, you know, we basically just were talking about it for a long time. And it, again, it just goes back to like, you going to talk about stuff or are you going to like take action on it? Hell yeah. And so we uh, eventually, he's quite a hustler and he is so good at his job. He's amazing with connections and grant writing. And he got lots of funding from the opioid crisis and we're able to put these programs together such as um, CrossFit at the uh, recovery gym it's called Um, and so we started a arm of the recovery gym which we call TRG and we call it run TRG 
Mm-hmm. And so I lead track workouts every Tuesday night. It's all abilities, welcome. And anybody for in or seeking recovery from substance addiction. And then I started, uh, fired back up the uh, trail Fridays, happy hour Fridays in Forest Park. Hell yeah. And so... And that's part of the same run TRG part of run TRG. And so... So one night on the track, one night in the park? Yep. Sweet. And then we are culminating... So pre-COVID, we used to work towards a specific event like uh, foot traffic half marathon or the Shamrock races, the road races. We would work towards those runs. Mm -hmm. But now uh, we're working towards a solstice large mountain. Hell Yeah. I was up there yesterday. Did you get up there? I, I didn't go to the top because I was running out of time, but you definitely can get oh, to yeah? the top. It seems I like. was wondering, the snow was not too bad? Uh, it was packed. So, okay, awesome. And then there was a big trench, so it felt oh. like you could make it to the summit. Nice, good to know. So that's what we're working towards with Run TRG is working towards this large mountain solstice on June 20th. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like those are two... I guess parts of our business that I'm just like most proud about too, the kids stuff and the recovery stuff wow. because it's just so fulfilling. Like I just go home and yeah, I'm exhausted, but my heart is full, man. Yeah. I'm just like, it's so rewarding. Yeah. And yeah. So, well, that's, that's how I feel whenever I, we finish our runs together. I go home well, just feeling so much better and, about the universe. <laughs> and I always admired your work when you go into the prisons oh, yeah. and I, it's the same feeling. Uh, yeah. I would always leave there just feeling Grateful. so good. Yeah. Grateful. Wow. I know. And I mean, that's a big part of recovery too. They would take meetings into uh, jails and institutions and mm-hmm. they're tough sometimes, you know, yeah. and, you know, and I've listened to some of your powerful podcasts and stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, when you walk out those doors and the, the, the lock yeah. behind you, it's just like, man, yeah. Especially for the way I was acting earlier in my life, I could have easily been locked up. Same. Yeah. Um, well, before we let you go, you ran a race this past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Just yesterday. Yeah. The Peterson Ridge Rumble 40 miler. Um, you've run the race like, what, seven? So seven it was my times? seventh time. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about what it was like being back out with the community racing again. Oh, dude, it felt so good. First of all, the Rumble has a really special place in my heart. Sean Meisner, friend, longtime ultra runner. You know Sean, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, he puts on that race. It's a great, it's a benefits the cross-country team, the school's cross-country team. So you feel good about that. And it's just like an early season race. I think six out of the seven years, it's been like sunny and perfect. Yeah. Like it's like perfect running weather. It's cool. Yeah. And just beautiful views. Um, and it's just a great early season community run. But the reason it's special for me is the first year that I ever ran it was the day after we found out we were having a baby girl. Wow. Yeah. So we like went to the, you know, the doctor. Yeah. They did the thing ultrasound yeah and they're like you're having a girl and i was so excited and um 
the next day I ended up winning the race. No way. Oh, what a so, memory. I know. And that, you know, that was... Did Farrah go to the race with you? Um, so then the next year she went, because she was still in the womb. Well, but I mean, the I met this year. weekend. Yeah. Oh, um, she didn't go the, uh, yesterday. She had a soccer there. game. She's been there in the past. Yes. Yeah. She's been there several times. Like, even like the next year she was there as a baby. It's such a... I mean, this is also just, I think, something that we can all sort of identify with. But yeah, like those those happy moments when we're like carrying that energy of just pure gratitude yep. and elation, you win the race, man, or you, you race to your ultimate potential or yeah. actually, um, yeah, you're able to, yeah, just sort of, I don't know. You just kind of harness that. I don't know what it is. It's hard to articulate, but it's, it's not strictly just physical training. Yeah. There's definitely, Something that happens. You're you're definitely able to go a little deeper or tolerate the suffering mm-hmm. a little bit better. And that's why I do feel like people in recovery kind of almost have this little bit of an edge in ultra sports mm-hmm. or in endurance sports because it's like you've been through, you've been to hell and back, yeah, and you know what it's like to grind and to like, yeah, keep the party going. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I feel like it's. It's uh, it's a good place. It's not just. I don't think it's just sub- subbing one addiction for the other. I think it's redirecting that energy into a more positive environment and activity. And unless it's becoming a major destruction in your life, like I think it's, go for it. I think it's awesome. It's rock and chair shit. Rock and chair shit. <laughs> How does the body feel after after the race? So it was really a competitive year. Yeah. I think everybody is just like rare and ready, yeah. rare and yeah. to go. And also, you know, some there's of these, not a lot of races going on. So. Yeah, so some people came up from like Lake Sonoma mm-hmm. that were going to run that oh. race same weekend, I yeah. believe. And it was it was I think it might have been the most competitive year at the at the longer race they it was a 40 miler but they shortened it to like 36 and so it went out fast as it always does because there's a cup there's flat trail and dirt road to start and then it's there's not a lot of vert throughout the race i think there's like two or three thousand for the entire race yeah so it's fast so i um keely it was fun to run with her for a second mm-hmm. and she ended up taking the win yeah she crushed brent it. brent hornig yeah for the men's but i was uh, i felt pretty good i mean i was been dealing with a little bit of a nagging hip issue yeah. that also really bothered me at black canyon but it didn't happen to the last two miles of my race yeah so i was in sixth place or i would have finished probably sixth place but um, the hip really acted up and forced me to slow down, and then yeah. I finished eighth place. Well, good for you, bro. That's amazing. Yeah, it felt ran, good. Ran a 40-mile ultramarathon yesterday. Here we are on our rocking 36. chairs talking about it. <laughs> yes. These are some comfy chairs, too. Well, dude, it's so fun to catch up and and chat, and I'm lucky to uh, call you a friend and to oh, likewise. do so many fun training runs together and have some awesome memories together. Dude, I'm so glad you moved here. Heck yeah. Absolutely honored to be a guest. Let's, uh, let's close by, I don't know if there's anything that you want to sort of tease about the future. I know you sort of told me about some things that you have coming up. I don't know if you want to talk about them publicly yet. Um, things that you have going on this year or generally uh, things that you're feeling good about in life or some silver linings that came from the past crazy 12 months. 
Totally. Well, I think in general, I mean, I think this past year, again, trying not to feed the bad wolf and to try to feed the good wolf is like, yeah, we can easily point to the dark side and the dismal outlook. But I think we all probably learned some important lessons this last year and like about what things are important to us and how we treat each other and what we need in our life. Like we're social creatures and I think we realized we took a lot for granted. Totally. And as far as racing and adventures go, I'm always have got something on the calendar that kind of scares me and that gives me butterflies and I'm doing some local races. Um, registered for the McDonald Forest 50K, which is a classic Oregon race that mm-hmm. I've never done. I think it's in its 25th year Really, this year. So I'm registered for that. I'm contemplating doing the Mount Baker Ultra. That's right. With Alex, our yeah. training friend. Alex Borsak. Alex Borsak. Yep. And I did that a couple, a few years ago, and I'd like to do that one again, possibly. And then... Willie, oh, before that, uh, the other big race I have on my calendar is TDS, one of the UTMB races, yeah. if it does happen. Yeah. You're wearing your CCC vest right now? Yes. <laughs> and sitting in the old Columbia Sportswear That's building. That's right. Which yes. is amazing. <laughs> so shout out Columbia. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so, and then the... Willie and I have put together this big adventure that we're doing that's called Lowest to Highest. And it goes from the lowest point in the U.S. at Badwater Basin. It's all off-road, all off-trail, and all the way to the top of Mount Whitney, which is about 130-plus miles total. That incorporates hiking, running, mountaineering, and just the metaphor from everything I just shared about the lowest points in my life to the highest. I just think there's a lot of metaphors there. And um, Willie has kind of also struggled with some, some depression and anxiety over the years and he's had his own struggles and triumphs. And so we're going to try to document that and have that on our calendar as a big 2021 goal. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. It's so true. Just life being, or the lowest to highest being such a perfect metaphor for coming out of such a crazy time in U.S. history, world history, hopefully coming out of the pandemic. And also, yeah, just acknowledging that we all hit our rock bottoms Mm -hmm. at various points in our lives. And Mm -hmm. we ride the roller coaster, each and every one of us, even if things appear to be perfect from the outside, it's never the case. And, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing whatever you guys put together there. But awesome. Dude, it's so fun to hang out and chat. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank Thanks for coming so over much. to the office here. And uh, let's go running soon. Let's run soon. <laughs> totally. All right, bro. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys did enjoy that one. I hope you were inspired or moved in some way by Yasin's story. Thanks so much to Yasin for being such an awesome guest and sharing his story with 
so much honesty and transparency. He is just such an awesome guy. If you don't already, please do go follow Yassine on Instagram. I have a link to his profile in the show notes. And I also linked to his coaching business, the Y East Wolfpack. If you are in the market for coaching help or just generally want to see what they are up to, go check that out in the show notes as well. Finally, I got to say, if you do enjoy the show and you want to support it, please do go subscribe to the Pillars app. And if that's too much to ask, it'd be great if you'd go leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts so we can continue to reach new listeners. We would genuinely really appreciate that as well. Okay. Thanks so much for being here. We'll talk to you guys again very soon. Love you so much. Bye-bye.